And uh, it's great to be back in the letter of Titus. So open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. We are in this section, very practical one, where the Apostle Paul delivers to these new congregations through his emissary, Titus, instructions on developing a distinctively Christian culture, a kind of culture that would be countercultural in light of the kind of, of, of culture that existed there on the island of Crete. We've been looking at the various instructions that the Apostle Paul has given to the different segments in the church. And as I've said many times, this is like Paul's household code. As he deals with these, these congregations and gives them instructions for how to live and conduct themselves in the household of faith. We're in this fifth section now as Paul deals with this fourth category of people within the church. He has already, after giving a a statement on the necessity of these expectations, he has already addressed the elderly men in verse 2. He's addressed the elderly women in verse 3. He has addressed through the elderly women, the young women in verses 4 and 5. And now he deals and, and gives his expectations uh, for the young men in verses 6 to 8. And that's uh, the text that we were in two weeks ago, and we didn't get through it. So I want to return there and again emphasize the very important instruction that the Apostle Paul gives to Titus. Now, just by way of reminder, it is interesting that Paul expresses his instructions to the young men in a different way than he has addressed the other categories of the people within the church. His language is a little different. Rather than providing the different uh, lists of virtues, what Paul does here is really focus on one thing. He tells uh, Titus that Titus must instill this primary virtue. He focuses on just one. He must instill this, this primary virtue in the young men. And it has to do with the term sensible, to be sensible. We'll look at that in just a moment, but before we do, remember the structure of these verses here. In verses 6 to 7, Paul gives his expectation to Titus. Self-control. The young men must focus on self-control. Secondly, he gives the inculcation. How would this instruction to the young men be implemented, and it is through personal example, and that's in verses six, or excuse me, seven to eight. And then the motivation comes right at the end of verse eight, the third part of Paul's logic here, and the motivation has to do with public testimony. So the the text breaks up this way: the expectation in verses six to seven. Paul writes, "Likewise, urge the young men." to be sensible in all things. Then he gives the inculcation in verses 7 to 8, showing yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. And then he gives the motivation at the end of verse 8. Look at it there. He says, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Now, we've covered the expectation already. Paul says this, likewise, verses 6 in the first part of verse 7, likewise, urge the young men 
to be sensible in all things. Paul instructed Titus to apply persuasion in an authoritative manner. It's a strong word that suggests that the most authoritative approach had to be taken with these, these young men, this particular segment of the church. And that one area that he challenges Titus to focus on with respect to these young men is related to the control of their mind. We translate it as to be sensible. That verb, to be sensible, comes from two Greek words, one meaning sound or healthy, and the other one meaning thinking. So together, that idea of to be sensible has the idea of sound thinking. And more particularly, as we look at that word, as it is used elsewhere, we see that it it, it related to a particular kind of self-control that began in the mind, a control of one's thoughts. Or as one commentator described it, it is a balanced demeanor characterized by self-control, prudence, and good judgment. And this sensibility, Paul instructs Titus, is to be exemplified and exercised in the young men as it pertains to all things. It is to be comprehensive. This self-control is to encompass all thought of a man's life so that it would impact all of his behaviors, his speech, his actions, and so on. And I said last time when, when we started our study of this particular section that if there is one issue, one thing that young men need to understand, it is this. This is, this is what determines a path in life between one of flourishing and, and one of failure. It is the ability to, by the grace of God, learn to control the thought life. It is so very important, and it is, it is wise for Paul, we can see, that he deals with this one issue in particular. Unlike the other groups where other virtues were listed alongside, this one, Paul says, is singularly important for young men. And Again, young men would be those from marrying age all the way up to the mid to late 40s. Paul recognizes this is that determining issue. For their lives. It certainly represents the book of Proverbs. In fact, if you would take that verb to be sensible, you could see it as a code word for Proverbs. It's really what Proverbs is all about. And I was drawn to, to this text that is very familiar to all of us, Proverbs 4, 20 to 23, where Solomon gives this instruction to his son. As Paul, in a way, did to Titus for the young men on the island of Crete, Solomon said this many centuries earlier to his own son when he said this, My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to all their body. And then he says this, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. 
Now, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew language, the idiom of the heart doesn't refer as it does today to emotions. The heart was mission control center. The heart is essentially the soul. And, and, and Solomon is saying there to his son, watch over your soul. Or in the language of the New Testament, it would be, watch over your mind, my son, with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. He, and, and, and Solomon goes on to say this in, in Proverbs 4, put away from you a, a deceitful mouth and put devious speech far from you. Let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left, nor turn your foot to evil. It all begins in the mind. And young men, if, if this is where you are able to gain control in the, in the sphere of the mind, the rest of life will fall into place, even in this corrupt world. But if you fail in this area of your thought life and the control of your thinking and allow your thoughts to engage evil, the rest of your life, 100% guaranteed, what will flow from your mind will be failure upon failure upon failure. Jerry Bridges, in his book, The Practice of Godliness, expressed it this way. He said, quote, Our minds are mental greenhouses where unlawful thoughts once planted are nurtured and watered before being transplanted into the real world of unlawful actions. These actions are savored in the mind long before they are enjoyed in reality. The thought life then is our first line of defense in the battle of self-control. All of us hear those words and we say, yes, that is true. The evil actions that we do are never unexplainable. They are always traced back to what has gone on in our minds well before the action takes place. And that's why a self-controlled mind will lead to a self-controlled life. That was Paul's focus. He... he he focused on this singular ex, uh, this expectation, self-control. We saw that already last time. And we also began to look at how this would be inculcated. So the second part of Paul's logic, the second stage here, is where he emphasizes personal example. The inculcation will happen through personal example. And this is the part of verse 7 and into, into verse 8. And, and he begins with these words in verse 7. He says, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. Or you could put it this way, showing yourself to be uh, an example of good deeds. Titus, as you instruct the men, as you urge them authoritatively that they must gain control by the grace of God of their thought life, you have a, have a particular role in this. To help persuade the men, Paul says to Titus, you must put your own life on display. You must show yourself, Paul says. 
For Paul, personal example was an essential component in the inculcation of this sensibility. He says to Titus, this isn't just something that you teach. It's not just something that, that, that you can tell the men. You must demonstrate it with your own life. And in particular, he says, exhibit this model, this lifestyle, through the essential qualities needed for the development of of sensibility. So what he says to, to, to Titus is this, teach it, urge them persuasively, but as you do that, you have a particular manner, and that will be through your lifestyle, that'll be through your model, your example, and you have to show the example particularly in good deeds, in tangible things in ways that are visible for the young men to observe in you. And what are those those good deeds? Well, Paul goes on to describe those now again in verses 7 and 8. He gives us three of them, three good deeds. And it's interesting to note this, and and it may appear strange to us at first. Why Paul deals with these, I'll get to that when we get to the third one, but But notice the three good deeds that Paul identifies here as particularly effective in instilling through personal example as well as teaching the virtue of mental self-control. He gives us three of them. The first one is purity in doctrine. He says, in purity in doctrine, dignified sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. Let's look at that first one. Purity in doctrine. Literally, you could translate this as incorruptibility in teaching. The emphasis here is on the act of teaching, on the act of of preaching and training. And and Paul uses this this strange word. It's a very rare word that we define as as incorruptible. It it really has the idea of, of of, a, of an uncompromising spirit. That's really what's there. Paul emphasizes to Titus that instilling sensibility requires a sincere and uncompromising, a single-minded approach to communicating the things of God. In short, Paul says to Titus, your one good deed that is particularly important in your life, in your example, is that you cannot compromise in the teaching. You cannot play loose with the truth. You have to be sincere and single-minded and not bend to and fro by the things of this world. We find an example of this of the false teachers. We studied this uh, a month or so ago when we, we studied the, the model or the example of the false teachers that, that Paul described in verses 10 to 16. And notice how Paul describes them at the end of verse 11. He says, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. They are motivated by money. They were motivated by comfort, pleasure, etc. And they were compromising. They were willing to compromise their their teaching in order to gain this kind of earthly stuff. But to Titus, 
Paul says, don't you be like that. If you are going to instill in young men, it means you must stand firm for the truth. You will do nothing to help the young men if they look at you and they look at your ministry of teaching and they see you as one who wavers to and fro based on the the, the mood of the day. You will never be able to instill, to inculcate sensibility, sound judgment, self-control of the mind if you are one who wavers. You must stand pure, uncompromising in your teaching. The second one he lists is dignity. He says, dignified. And this word here is another uh, another term that describes the teaching that that Titus was to exemplify as he worked in general with the churches, but also with the young men. He had to approach his teaching ministry with dignity. The idea of this term, dignity, refers to that which is serious, that which has gravitas, that which is weighty. And, and, and Paul emphasizes here that sensibility, sound judgment instilled in these young men is not going to, to, to happen if Titus teaches in such a way that's unserious, superficial, these amusing talks. It will only be instilled in these young men through an approach to teaching that is weighty, that is affected by God's holiness and God's glory. And so he he instructs Titus, Titus, you must be impacted by this. You must have this approach to this responsibility that, that places a weightiness on your shoulders so that when you interact with these young men, as you would interact with the entire church, you feel the burden. Not only are you unwilling to compromise, you're single-minded, but you feel the burden. And you communicate with weightiness as a dying man to dying men. You communicate with the kind of weightiness that Jesus communicated in Mark 8, verse 36, when he says, For what does it profit a man that he gained the whole world but lose his own soul? It's a kind of weightiness that William Perkins talked about as he addressed young preachers and and dealt with the problem of young preachers in his day, too, that were prone to levity and superficiality. And William Perkins, this, this 16th century Puritan trainer of preachers, said this, that, that this means that preachers must be filled with a reverent sense of the majesty of God and so we will speak soberly and with moderation. He goes on and says, The minister must also be worthy of his respect for his constancy, integrity, seriousness, and truthfulness. Perkins is really drawing from this text and explaining the essential characteristics that are needed if he is to have, if Titus is to have success, if we are to have success in instilling sensibility in young men. How one teaches the Bible to others, how one teaches the Bible to young men, is vitally important, and it will reflect one's view of God. Do we view God as 
glorious, weighty? Or do we approach him as just a friend, an acquaintance? And that has a big impact on the kind of men that sit under that kind of ministry. There's a third, a, a third deed that the Apostle Paul focuses on here, a deed in which Titus was to be an example as he instructed the young man in soundness of mind, and that is he must be sound in speech. Literally, the term is correct or healthy in word. It's a reference here to doctrinal accuracy. So the first of these three focused on uncompromising teaching, the second one on weighty, serious teaching. This one focuses now on accuracy. Titus You have to give your attention to theological precision. You will not engender or inculcate soundness of of reasoning in others' minds if, if you're not careful with how you use your language, if you're not careful with how you deal with apostolic teaching, if you're not careful with how you deal with the Scriptures. And indeed, doctrinal preaching may be boring to the superficial, but let, let me say this, that, that, that doctrinal preaching alone is what really instills sound judgment. You do not get sound judgment from a doctrinal preaching. You do not get sound judgment from a kind of preaching that cares little about accuracy and is vague and fuzzy. No, sound Reasoning, sound judgment, control of one's thoughts will be shaped by exposure to precise teaching of the Word of God. And indeed, it may be boring to some, but this is, this is the way. In Titus 1 verse 9, Paul already emphasized this when he described what the elder candidates needed to be if they were to be considered worthy of the office of overseer. And Paul said to Titus, as, as, Titus, as you look for men who can rise up to lead these new churches on the island of Crete, look for men who are able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict He said this at the very beginning of these household instructions in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, but as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Over and over again, Paul emphasizes in the pastoral letters, but especially here in Titus, the need for sound doctrine, soundness, health in the faith. And over and over again, Paul emphasizes sensibility. These two things are related That if there is to be control of one's thoughts, whether it be in the lives of the elder candidates, we saw that already, they had to exemplify this quality. If it is in the lives of the older men, the lives of the older women, the lives of the younger women, or the the lives of these young men, there needed to be sound doctrine that is taught. Now why did... Titus need reminder of these three qualities? Well, the answer to that is these deeds, by exemplifying himself, by demonstrating his progress in these ways, Titus 
would be enabled to address the young men's minds correctly, forming in them sound, self-controlled judgment. And again, how important is that for our men today? How important is that? J. Gresham Machen, in a book written last century, some 70 years ago or so, said this, contrary to what seems to be quite generally supposed, thinking cannot be avoided by the Christian man. He goes on to say this, our religion is really founded upon words of soberness and truth, referring to a text from Acts 26 as Paul makes his defense before Agrippa. Our religion is really founded upon words of soberness and truth. But it suffers now not from an excess of thinking, but from a woeful deficiency of it. And you can trace the pattern very, very clearly in those contexts where less and less attention is given to an uncompromising approach to the truth, to a weighty approach to the truth, and to an accuracy in doctrinal teaching you see produced, especially in the young men, frivolous thinking. And that frivolous thinking then goes on to ruin not only their own lives, but the lives of many others around them. And the solution to all of this, Paul says to Titus, Titus, this isn't going to be popular. This isn't going to go with the culture of the day, but you're going to have to stand firm despite what people say. You're going to have to be serious not just fun all the time. And, and you know what? You're going to have to be precise. And if you show yourself an example in these things, you will find success in imparting to the men sound judgment. And why was this so important for Paul? Well, that comes at the end of verse 8 where we get to the motivation. And the motivation has to do with public testimony. Notice what Paul says at the end of verse 8, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. This was the, the purpose. Paul has used this kind of reasoning, this kind of motivation already. If you look at the end of verse 5, we see this as Paul had instructed the old, older women to, to inculcate virtue in the younger women. Why was that so important? Well, there was a purpose there too. Notice the end of verse 5. So that the word of God will not be dishonored. If the young women will not live virtuous lives, if the older women will not cultivate these things in their lives, the word of God will be dishonored. And Paul was was concerned about that happening on the island of Crete. But he also was concerned about that with respect to the young men. That if they wouldn't learn this sound judgment, this ability to control their thoughts, he was concerned about a particular end, a particular result, and that was a sullied testimony. And what is part of, what's part of this motivation? He says this, so that the opponent will be put to shame. Who's the opponent? Well, on the one hand, the opponent could be taken to, to be those false teachers who were wrecking homes, 
you go back in chapter 1, verses 10 and following, they were wrecking homes and creating chaos and havoc in the churches. Or the opponent could be the, the pagan unbeliever who's, who's still worshiping at the, the, the altar of the pagan temples, that, that lazy, gluttonous liar that Paul refers to in, in chapter 1, that that might be the opponent. We really don't know. Paul uses it in the singular here, which is probably intended to be a generic reference, not singling out anyone in particular, but just referring to all of those who oppose the grace of God, who do not have the grace of God operating in their lives and hate the church, hate the gospel. They're always looking for ways to to sully. And Paul says that if young men will understand and and implement this this control of their thinking, the opponent will be put to shame. Now, this doesn't mean that all persecution and all slander will be done away with and that the Christians there would enjoy this kind of super status of, 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 of being unassailed wherever they go. That's not the case. We just look at the Apostle Paul's life. He, he refers to himself as being the scum of the earth. He's assailed wherever he goes. He's challenged. He's accused of all kinds of things. But what Paul is talking about here is, is really the the, the being put to shame in the sense that they would make accusations, but in the end, when the life would be truly examined, these young men's lives, the, the accusations made against them would not stick. When their lives would be put up to examination and people would really look at how they live their lives, how they interact with people, how they do their work, how they live in their families, how they live just in their personal lives, that even those who hate them could not say anything bad or evil about the actual conduct of their lives. Paul was concerned about that, and he knew the way that this would be achieved would be to get the young men in line, to get them controlling their thoughts. And if they would refuse or if they would treat this necessity, this expectation with a grain of salt, they would bring shame upon themselves, but as we see, not only upon themselves, but upon the entire church, having nothing bad to say about us. John Chrysostom in in summarizing this, makes this statement, and he states it so eloquently, fitting for one named Golden Tongue. He said this, For when the life is illustrious, and the discourse corresponds to it, being meek and gentle, and affording no handle to the adversaries, it is of unspeakable advantage. And you'd look in our culture today, especially among the men, and those who have control stand out as lights shining in a dark place. And I want to address you young men 
and say this, that especially in the culture that we live in today, that one virtue that you must put on that will set you up not only for flourishing in the rest of your life and for those with whom your life intersects, but this characteristic, this virtue, will stand out and it will give you plenty of opportunities for evangelism. People will ask the question, why are you not like us? Why are you not doing the same things? And that will be a wonderful segue to explain the grace of God that has come to you, that has taught you to be sensible. Well, as we close this particular set of instruction to young men, I want to give you some, I want to give you 10 important keys here for developing sensibility uh, in your own life, developing sensibility. So young men, married or single, and understand this, that these keys do not just relate to the young men, even though I'm addressing young men primarily right now, because Paul, as we have seen, has required this same term from all the different categories there in the church. That that concept of sensibility relates to the elders, to the older men, to the younger men, to the older women, to the younger women. It is that that seemingly singular virtue that was so critical for those new believers to develop. So this relates to everyone, but I want to address you young men in particular. You young men, marrying age and older, or if you have a driver's license or a bank account, if you have some level of, uh, of, of uh, autonomy or independence and you can walk in a straight line and count to ten, uh, this, is, this is for you, okay, young men? Number one, it begins with praying for discernment. If you were the kind of young man that, that Titus was to address, I think Titus would take you through the book of Proverbs, he'd take you through all the scriptures that were at that time, and of course we have them all for us now, even the apostolic scriptures But it begins here in in praying for discernment. You must acknowledge your need, and that need must be expressed in prayer. So young men, this is where it begins, prayer. It means you begin every day, and then at those important moments throughout the day when you give those staccato prayers, you pray for discernment. Notice what Solomon instructs his son in Proverbs 2, verses 3 to 5. He says this, For if you cry for discernment, If you lift your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. So young men, are you praying for sensibility? As as you think of your own life, as you pray about yourself, this should be at the top of the list. Lord, I need discernment. You need to cry out for this. You need to recognize your need and seek it from the Lord more than anything else that you would seek in life. Number two, feed on God's word. Feed on God's word. Jesus, as he was tempted in the wilderness, 
Obviously, there, we have a picture of ultimate, perfect sensibility in the person of Jesus. We see him tempted. We see him in a place of need. And as he's tempted, he makes this statement, quoting from Deuteronomy, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Young men, you must learn early on that that you cannot live by bread alone. You must live on every word that has proceeded out of the mouth of God. This means you must feed on God's word. You cannot be impacted. You cannot have your mind formed by that which you do not know. And since purity in life begins with purity in thought, your thoughts must be informed by the word of God. But it's not unusual to talk to young men who, who come and say, I'm, I'm caught in this very difficult place of life, and to ask them, well, how much do you study the Scriptures? And the answer is commonly, well, it's been a while. And it's kind of like, duh. <laughs> and you're wondering what to do? This is where it, it starts. And listen, if you have not fed on God's Word, you cannot expect that in the moment of temptation that you will find an easy answer to the problem. No, when you're in those difficult moments and, and you're wondering what to do and you don't know how to resist the temptation, you're stumbling, think back, how much have you fed yourself on the Word of God to prepare you for this moment? And often, often, the answer is going to be not enough. Feed on God's Word. Number three, not just intake that Word, not just have those daily reading times, but meditate on the word, meditate on the truth. This is a discipline that is harder to develop than merely a reading plan. A reading plan is where it all begins when, when you have that time, when you're reading through the scriptures regularly, you're taking it in, but meditating on the truth is, is more than that. Meditating on the truth is dwelling on it. It's recalling it. It is deliberately thinking, now that you've read it, throughout the day, to to have it impact your thought life. Philippians 4, verse 8. Paul says this, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise dwell on these things. Not momentarily, not for 15 minutes at the beginning of the day, but dwell. Dwell on these things. And you know, there is a law here that your, your mind is, is limited. It is, it is only capable of doing so much, of having so many thoughts. And if those thoughts are already filled with that which is true and honorable and excellent, there will be no place for the evil thoughts. But the problem is, among young men, is that often the, the mind is empty. And we parents, we know that. And uh, <laughs> it's like empty, empty heads. Well, empty heads lead to sinful lives. Empty heads are a wonderful place for the enemy of your soul to sow his seed. 
But you fill that mind up with truth, and then you constantly reboot and reload and reload and reload throughout the day, and you will find yourself ready to handle the problems of life. Number four, resist the world. Resist the world. Romans 12 verse 2 says, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And here's the point. A Christian way of thinking requires conscious negation. So it can't just be about filling your mind. It must also include this conscious, conscious deliberate rejection, resistance, negation, where you pronounce Thoughts as evil, where you pronounce ideologies as contrary to the revelation of God, where you recognize that the culture, the flesh, is not your friend, and, and that if anything, it wants to bring you down, and you are always on guard. And that leads to our next point. Psalm, uh, the question every thought is illustrated by Psalm 42, verse 5. Question every thought. There, there are going to be thoughts that come into your mind, and, and so often our reaction is simply to entertain them, right? And that's what we, we talk about, entertaining thoughts. Kind of an interesting idiom that we use for that, but that's exactly what happens in many young men's lives. They entertain thoughts. These thoughts come in from the outside or from their own flesh, and they just arise, and so the young man entertains them. But we must learn through a kind of discipline and this is what sound judgment, a control of thoughts is, is that we question the thoughts. Don't believe everything you think. And in Psalm 42, verse 5, we find David doing exactly this, where he says this, Why are you in despair, my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? That was David's problem. David's problem was that these thoughts were coming to him, thoughts of despair, thoughts of discouragement, self-pity, all of this kind of of dark thinking. And and, and, And David begins to question this and ask, why are you thinking this? You have to talk to yourself in a good way, preferably when no one's looking. And then go on with what David says. David preaches to himself and says, Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. As you question every thought, you ask, Does this conform to to the standard of God's revelation? Or you ask, Why are you thinking this way? Why why is this thought in my mind? And that leads to the sixth point, take all thoughts captive. As you question those thoughts, there will be those that come into your mind which are contrary. What do you do with them? You take it captive. You take it captive. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5 says, We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. What does that mean, to take all thoughts captive? It doesn't mean you just try to stop thinking about it. Instead, it says, okay, I'm going to run right to the lordship of Christ on this, and in place of that particular thought, which is lustful or angry or discouraging, I am going to think about what the lordship of Christ demands of me here in this moment. That takes a lot of discipline. 
every thought must be made to yield to the lordship of Christ. He has lordship over all of you. Number seven, combat enslavement to error. Second, or Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. What this means is a proactive evaluation of the thought life to see whether there are any patterns, any habits of thinking that are actually enslaved not to Jesus Christ, but to empty philosophies. It means not just examining those active thoughts and making them captive to the lordship of Christ, but examining our thinking on a regular basis. Why do I do these things? Why are these convictions for me? Why are these values for me? Why do I hold this dear? And to consider maybe, just maybe, I have actually become enslaved to something other than Jesus Christ. Maybe it's materialism. And you're doing what you're doing because money. And you just don't really think about it. Or maybe it's fear of man. Or maybe it's the hunger for popularity, and you go on and on, but you must actively combat enslavement to error, and that takes discipline, but it yields a control of one's thought life. Number eight, cultivate the skill of listening. And this relates not just to the scriptures, you're already reading scriptures and meditating on scriptures, but you must understand God has given you a whole church. God will mediate his knowledge to you through the ministry of of others within the church. Teachers, pastors, other believers. Proverbs 18.13 says, He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. We could go through so many Proverbs that speak about the need for, for young men to listen. Listen to counsel. Develop that skill. And again, this is something that young men are notorious for, is that they will not listen. But you learn how to listen at a young age. You you learn how to keep your mouth shut and just listen to what is being said to you, and you will find you will become far wiser than your peers. Cultivate the skill of listening. Yeah, all the parents are going, Amen. (laughs) I know. (laughs) number nine not just listen not just listen but seek the counsel from the mature proverbs 15 31 to 32 says he who whose ear listens to the life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise he who neglects discipline despises himself but he who listens to reproof acquires understanding. So not only do you learn how to listen, but you actively pursue these meaningful relationships with mature men, older men, who've walked the path of life farther than you have, and and you go to those gray hairs, you go to those people with the maturity, and, and you ask them. You don't wait for them to come to you and say, I want to disciple you. You go, and you find those older men, and you say, teach me about life. How has God shown himself faithful in your life? How have you seen the word of God applied rightly in your life? 
Seek counsel from the mature. And then number 10, apply knowledge for good. Become an instrument for good. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1 says that knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. What Paul is saying there is not that knowledge and love are antithetical to one another. No, not at all. He doesn't say knowledge makes arrogant, but ignorance edifies. This is not an antithesis. He's talking about a certain kind of knowledge that is, that is without love. It makes arrogant. And understand this, that the reason why you need sensibility is not just for yourself. The reason why you need sensibility is to be, to be good for others. To be a source of encouragement, edification, blessing in the lives of others. That is what will demonstrate your soundness of judgment in the world and make you a rare man in the culture today. I'll put these slides as as they always are. I'll put them on the website. You can come back to these slides and these 10 points later. But let's pray and ask that the Lord would do that in our midst among the young men that we have a part of us. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your word that gives us such clear instruction, answers to the struggles we face in life, to the questions that we, we have even hundreds and hundreds of years after this word was written. It continues to be that bright light on our path, and we are so grateful for it. We pray for our young men that these instructions that you gave through the Apostle Paul to Titus 2,000 years ago would resound in their hearts, that that these instructions would, would change these young men we have in our midst that it, would, that it would impact them, it would lead to self-examination and a new course in life. But as we pray this, Father, we also recognize that that is not possible apart from your saving grace. So we pray for the young men in our midst that that would be their experience. They would come to know, if they have not already, your grace. And then that grace which has come into their lives, bringing salvation, would be what would instruct them to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly. Empower them to that and make them a wonderful blessing in their families, in this church, in our group, as well as in the world. And we pray this so that no one would speak evil of us. For your glory's sake, amen.